listening to an episode of the Resilience Project podcast. I'm your host, Katie Bachmeyer. Today, we're going to talk with Dean, who shares his thoughts on why it's so important to respect cultural values and norms as a professional working in trauma-responsive care. He's going to talk about what it looks like when we miss the boat on this and why it matters so much to be culturally aware when providing supports. Dean Swartz. I'm a behavior support specialist for the Claremont County Board of DD. The ways I've seen resilience show up in people that I work uh, is uh, finding a passion and exercising that passion, be it art or uh, sports or you know activities like that. And then probably the biggest one is just connecting to other people who have like interests. I think that's one of the strongest things is finding that person that likes some of the same things that you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really, that connection really, you know, I think David Batoniak says, you know, we're pack animals, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we want to connect with other people. So that's a, a big step in resilience. Yeah, and you're out here in a rural part of the greater Cincinnati area. So tell me about what that looks like when you find people who share your interests. Is that, do you think it's a myth that it's more difficult in a rural area to find people to connect with? I I think it can be more difficult. Like a a simple factor of transportation makes things a lot more complicated. So to get to those people, obviously it's more difficult at times in a rural area than it is in the greater Cincinnati area where, you know, you have the metro that you can hop on a bus and get there. Mm -hmm. Um, We see many people that have ideas about how they want to connect but struggle to find a way to get there to connect. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the biggest things that I see. But there are less opportunities the more rural you get, depending on what that area of interest is. You know, I mean, there are things, you know, sports are big everywhere. Different types of activities and crafts are big, you know. So if you're in an area where those things are and it's accessible, then it would be about the same, I would say. But if you've got more abstract interest, it could make it more complicated to connect. Yeah, what would be an abstract interest? Um, Good point. Well, uh, I work with someone right now who really loves anime. And, and I would say that although there are quite a few people out there that really enjoy anime, it's, it's much more different to connect to clubs and things in, in a rural area than it would in a uh, larger, you know, more urban area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, what do you do in those cases? How does the creativity uh, come into play there with your work? Well, you know, sometimes we have to create our own. Uh, We recommend Meet Up. That's a great program that a lot of people do. We also, you know, access the Internet as much as possible to try to find people. But uh, one of the the most important parts, I guess, of establishing resilience is that uh, voice choice and control and giving a person that opportunity to create their own group and then advertise and gather people, you know. So being a trailblazer and being a leader uh, really builds self-esteem, which is another one of the resilience factors that we work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So there's some differences just off the bat about living in a rural community, and this is a rural Appalachian community. Share a little bit. Can you share a little bit about what it was like for you growing up in Appalachia? Well, uh, I grew up in a much more rural area than even where I work now. Uh, I'm from Mudlick, Kentucky. So, uh, but, uh, you know, it, it was not unusual that there were bootleggers. 
which, you know, uh, it was a dry county, and that was a very common thing that we saw. Definitely, you know, I'm 51 years old, uh, so things were done differently than they do now as far as resolving difficulties and, and things like that. Very... Um, farm-based community. So one of the things that we'd run into would be very insular. Uh, we don't talk to people outside our culture. We don't really want to reveal a lot of information. A little bit nervous around, you know, uh, someone from the government, children's services and things like that. It's just a, a very, we take care of our own type of uh, structure. So that was something that, that I saw on a common basis. How do you think that serves the people who are living in that community. It sounds like that could actually be a, a point of resilience to hold tight. There's something uh, about that that I think, you know, holding on to that as part of your culture, it's not a bad thing. It's not, this isn't, these are things that are actually strengths. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. A definite strength. And having that sense of community is one of the most important things that we talk about with resilience. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, my own personal experience, which I know many other people have had, but uh, twice in my life, we lost everything in a fire. Mm -hmm. But I never recall at age five or at age 13 wanting for anything after that because the community came together and supported my family. You know, we had the clothes on our backs and that was pretty much it. But I don't remember missing a meal. I don't remember not having something to wear because our community supported us. Mm -hmm. You know, probably better or more effectively than what social services could at that time in a very rural area. Mm -hmm. So, And for a culture that's more minority culture in, you know, the dominant culture kind of looking in, those types of tendencies might be seen as some things that are very insular or, you know, um, people just want to keep to themselves and why is right. that? And But truly what it looks like in a lived experience what you're saying is that there's a a lot of community that fabric is strong yeah no I, I think definitely and I think in our role as providers and supporters of the people that we work with we have to show respect for that and there is a, a reason that the relationship is so important you know and we want to develop a relationship and understand that culture and you know and I've been able to over the years be able to connect with people that were in cultures outside of the one that I grew up with. But it takes, uh, you know, effort and commitment, and you have to be intentional in doing that. You know, you want to make sure that you always show respect for the culture of the people that you support. How do you go about being intentional? Well, I will tell you something very simply that I do, and actually, you know, I, it's also considered a, an affirmation for rebonding in Mary Vicario's trainings, is just simply when I meet with people, thank them for allowing me to spend time with them and for them welcoming me into their home. I mean, that's a big step. Mm -hmm. You know, someone who needs help but may have experienced negative experiences uh, in the system before to allow me to enter their home and sit with them uh, and spend some time with them. So they deserve to be recognized for that and honored for the efforts that they're making. So starting off with some gratitude yeah, just for even allowing you into their space and yeah. what would be the steps after that? Once that kind of gratitude is expressed, what do you do to continue building trust and building a safe place for that family to be with you? Many times I think the, the, the next step of that would be just to listen. Mm -hmm. 
too often uh, we want to come up with solutions and offer answers when people start talking about their own struggles. But I think one of the key things that we need to do is just be quiet and listen. Because what I see many times is they know the answers. You know, they can offer the solutions for their own problems. And maybe then all they need is my support to make those come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I want to listen. And by listening, that's, again, showing them the respect that they deserve, that your your voice matters. Yeah, and if you're coming from a different perspective because your culture isn't the same how do you listen how do you how do you listen with a lens that's very aware like that Uh, well uh, I think you know as I said before is just being quiet Mm -hmm. Uh, because you know I'm a very talkative person in my own right and and, uh, I also talk a lot with my hands and I know that sometimes in certain cultures that could be putting off for someone Mm -hmm. so I try to just use those eliciting comments of uh uh-huh you know tell me more you know let me know what you're you know what you think about that and allow them the opportunity and usually they'll give you the cue when they want you to respond or when it's your time to talk there's a story you've told and I think it would be great to share it again about working with a family who has a perception of what trauma is and that being somewhat different from your understanding of what trauma is and that's a very fundamental cultural difference that plays deeply into this work how do you manage through that difference of opinions on it and become more tied in together in a relationship without judgment well and i think without judgment is the key there this isn't a process of shame or blame this is a process of healing and resilience mm-hmm. so i think we you know as i said we listen but then we offer those uh, resilience factors that is going to help improve that person's life. Very often in our lives or in the lives of anyone, we are a resilience factor and possibly a challenge. I would, I would definitely believe that my kids, uh, I've got four teenagers and I think they're, depending on the moment that you ask them, some of them are gonna say big resilience factor in dad, Uh, at times are going to be dad is the challenge here, you know, Uh, and we have to recognize that and honor that uh, in the people that we support. Wow, that's a really, really good point that as a parent that oftentimes you're doing your best and you are building so much resilience for your child in various ways, but we're all human. And so we struggle sometimes to be perfect for our kids. And so sometimes with the best intentions, even our kids are impacted and see us as challenges. Um, And that plays into even maybe deeper behaviors like drug abuse, right? Um, That even a drug abuser as a parent can be building resilience factors. Absolutely, and and we see that on a daily basis, you know. Um, You know, definitely, you know, we want to support someone in a way that they are safe. And we know that oftentimes drug use can uh, provide a lack of safety because of some of the uh, things that occur with it. But instead of judging or, or shaming and blaming someone, if we can offer strategies that help build resilience, we see that the parents, I've met very few parents that don't want their children to do well. 
you know, so it, it just I might not know how or I might need help with that uh, and understanding that. But uh, most parents that I've met love and want their children to do well. They have their own struggles that they deal with. Their children have their struggles as well. Do you think from the perspective of like different cultural differences that some parents are feel differently about the the impact that they have on a person on their child's life meaning they would really feel like I would never harm my child how could you ever say that and it is such a big cultural taboo thing to say that that would never be able to be an acceptable conversation I think it would be a difficult one I mean you know I, I can say in my own personal experiences you know I divorced when my children were were very young and Obviously, I think you coined the phrase, you know, I would never hurt my children, but it would be remiss of me to think that that divorce didn't have an effect on my children. Uh, being able to admit that would be a very difficult thing, uh, which required therapy and, and discussion, you know, and, and what we have to realize is this process is a marathon, not a sprint. And we want to make sure that, you know, as we build resilience, in the individuals we support, we're just as much helping the family and the other individuals that impact their life develop resilience as well. Can you take me back to the room when you were in the timeline with the family and just describe that scene and what was going on and how they responded? Well, in the timeline, we discuss uh, chronologically the experiences of that person's life. And uh, the particular parent uh, was very open uh, in discussing that her and her husband, you know, both people uh, were trafficking in drugs and using drugs at the time. Uh, you know, uh, they were parenting the child. And as we went to identify that as an ACE, uh, an adverse childhood experience, the parent's re response was, I don't think that had any impact on him, though, because we insulated him from that. We protected him from it. We didn't let him be a part of that. And, you know, obviously there, there are many people in the room that had probably their own biases and own strong feelings about the effects of drug use on, on children. But we did not approach it in that manner. We continued with the timeline, identifying these ACEs, of which many others occurred in this particular instance, and then developed interventions and strategies that would build resilience. Uh, allowing that parent to, you know, who was very open and, and expressing what their lives were at that time, to have that peace uh, and understanding, that, you know, their understanding that they didn't have an impact on that. And from what it sounds like, you being in the room was a very important factor in that, maybe because you come from a similar uh, background culturally where you understand sort of maybe where this, these parents are coming from. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that signal happened in you where you were like, oh, OK, I understand this. I need to speak up for them. Yeah. And I think that's definitely a case. I mean, I think, you know, growing up in in very rural Appalachia, I think uh, definitely marijuana use was a very common occurrence as well as alcohol in the uh farming communities and areas that, that I grew up in. And I can understand, like I said, people offer resilience even though they may offer challenges as well. So, I mean, this parent, I'd had enough experience with this parent to know how much they love and care for their child and how hard they're trying to help. Yeah. So I didn't feel it was a, a, a time to, like I said, shame or blame, but instead support them in moving through the timeline process, which 
the process and the way that it's designed took care of providing those interventions that are going to address some of those issues. Yeah, before you brought up how it's uh, there's a difference maybe in people from other cultures and the way that they view professionals, maybe yeah. the way that they view the government or professionals coming in to try and make a difference in their lives, and there's a lot of mistrust there. And so do you think there's something, too, around just the fact that you're, tr- you're a trained professional, you are educated in trauma-informed interventions, and therefore you could really come across as distasteful to them if you were to kind of get on your high horse and start talking about, well, don't you know trauma and where it is in the brain and yeah. rattling off your list of things that you're an expert on. Um, is there some kind of awareness that you have when you use language and talk to families and talk to people from other cultures about what you know? Yes, we Not even... to say you're dumbing it down, but just to say, like, just being aware of of that piece well I mean I think the experiences are universal so I think we really talk about those more than the term trauma I know we have a brochure here you know at the county board letting people know about our model and the way that we support people and we felt that it was key that we listed it uh, you know uh, without the term trauma in it because you know trauma has a stigma Mm -hmm. and depending on cultural experiences you know people respond strongly to that Um, I would respond strongly to that. I mean, I think if uh, the first time I assisted my children in a therapy session after my divorce, the therapist said, uh, Mr. Schwartz, you traumatized your children by getting a divorce, I would probably reacted strongly. Uh, But by saying, you know, there are some things that we see that could affect your children, and these are how we can mitigate those and support them in that, it's, it's a much better approach and a much kinder approach. Yeah, and the universality of trauma and life experiences, that seems to be a place of meeting everybody where they are. Mm-hmm. That when you can elevate it to that place and bring it out of the professionalism, bring it out of the jargon, and just talk about life as it is, that seems like a really empathetic place to go from, a really human place to go from with people. Yeah. Do you think they notice that there's a difference there? Oh, I think so. And I mean, if we talk about the resilience factors, that key piece is having relationships with safe adults. So developing that relationship and that connection with the parents, with the you know person that we're supporting, that is key to, to everything that we do. And you have to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about the safe adults, like be, being... What do you mean by that? Like the well, when we're talking about adverse childhood experiences, most of those things happen, you know, in childhood with uh, maybe adults, you know, who have not necessarily been safe in one manner or the other. You know, uh, if you look at the ACEs, many of those, even something as simple as, you know, parents arguing and then getting that divorce, you know. So uh, having people feel safe in our interactions. Uh, so getting to know that individual, uh, know their likes, their interests, their culture, and meeting them just on a human level as opposed to just like what you were talking about as a professional. I mean, we tend to, I mean, if we think about it, we show up and we have our badges and our notebooks and our ink pens and we write lots of stuff down. It would be hard for anyone not to feel like they're being judged or graded in some way. So I think this entire process says, you know, we we have to meet people where they're at 
and look at what's happened to them and what have they done to survive those experiences as opposed to judge in any way. Because, you know, what we want people to do is connect to other people. And through those connections, we see the self-esteem being built. We see the voice choice and control being exercised. We see all those other resilience factors that we talk about through those connections with safe adults. So is it that the service provider or the professional is the end point, that this is the relationship you're trying to build, or is there a secondary goal in terms of building relationships with people? Well, I think there's a secondary goal. To help uh, proceed with the process, we've got to build a relationship, but we're really looking for those natural supports. You know, we want them to connect to people in their community and and have those experiences with people of like mind and interest. No matter how good I am as a uh, behavior support specialist, I'm not the same as having a dear friend who uh, just wants to be with that person because of who they are. And I can be great at what I do, but that's a different connection and and a different feeling. Uh, So we want to be you know, the best professional, best support that we can, but we've got to help them connect to others in the community. So you kind of brought up in the beginning around the rural challenges of just transportation or just like when you have a more niche interest at it being difficult. Is there ever a time when cultural differences make it difficult for somebody to even form a relationship beyond themselves in the community? Yeah, I think so, uh, depending on how insular the, the culture is. I mean, and we do see by virtue of, of some of the people that we're working with, we see people that maybe don't even have a lot of family. So they're very isolated in themselves. And that's where, as a professional and some of the other professionals in our field, how their focus is to be that bridge. So to help develop that relationship and then connect two people together. So things can really fall apart if right. we're not able to meet people halfway. Or yeah, well, and I think what happens is there's a level of frustration in the family and in the professional, and one or the other party s- suspends the, the services. You know, the family finally says, you know, I am so frustrated with this that I just don't want to work with this group. Or the professional says, you know, I'm making no progress. I have you know, a uh, imperative to try to make progress and achieve something. And, and I think we're done here. And, and that serves neither party, so. Yeah, yeah, that's the worst case scenario, probably. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that takes away all possibilities of being able to help. Do you have any, any advice that you've been given that's really mattered or made a difference to you? Well, I think probably the, the most important thing that, and I've said it maybe even a couple of times during the thing, is just that changing that from why is this person doing this to what has happened to this person. Because by understanding that, then that gives us the foundation to put these interventions in place and, and connect a person with resilience. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes for more links and resources.